Today, we enter into a new teaching series here at Covenant entitled, Jesus is Lord. This statement was the earliest confession that is known that the first Christians would make that unified them as a people. The proclamation that Jesus alone is the Lord of our lives. That Jesus is the Lord of this creation that he loves. And as we as a nation enter into this election season, a time of great division, a time of uncertainty, it is our hope that this base proclamation of the church, that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, would both direct our steps in these days as well as give us hope that he is with us no matter what may come. When we proclaim that, it means that we enter into this season not primarily as Democrats, not primarily as Republicans, not primarily as independents, but as followers of Jesus, seeking to know and follow his will. And like many of you, I have been greatly disturbed as our nation has walked through recent years of seeing incredible divisions that are growing, incredible fissures that are growing, mostly based upon espoused political ideology. Like many of you, I have had a lot of people, a lot of national leaders, a lot of voices sending me emails and mailings. As a pastor, I get lots of this. Telling us as Christians, as people of faith, how to vote. And this, these mailings kind of work in a certain way. And they work based on a kind of checklist understanding of Christianity. I'd say about half of the mailings I get tell me that as a pastor and as a Christian, that me and the congregation I'm serving, if we vote for Joe Biden because of these three reasons, that we uh, do not understand what the real Christian faith is about, and therefore we have to vote for Donald Trump for these reasons. And then about half of the mailings I get give a checklist on the other side that as a Christian, because of this, this, and this, well, there's no way we can vote for Donald Trump. And we have to easily, understandably, very simply understand that Joe Biden is the only choice that any kind of true Christian could make in this time. It's this checklist approach that I want us to talk about today, because the identity of both of these sides doesn't feel so much like it has theological grounding and depth as it is the talking points of the far left and the right of our political spectrum, sprinkling in a little Jesus into it and using the same talking points that we would hear out in the world. I want to first take a kind of 30,000-foot view of how it is that I believe you and I are to approach these times beyond just the checklist voting, and also how it is that as we get more specific that we are to conduct ourselves in these days. So first, the kind of 30,000-foot view. I want you to know that my own perspective on this is, is something that I feel very confident about uh, in the 30,000-foot in view. And I, there are not a lot of things I would say I would speak with great confidence in. But what I have great confidence in is that when we say Jesus is Lord, when we make that proclamation, we are espousing an idea that the kingdom of God is larger, is broader, has more depth than the American political spectrum. That we are saying that the kingdom of God doesn't just neatly fit in one corner of our assumed landscape of where identity is found. No matter how many voices on the left and the right are trying to convince us differently, the kingdom of God is bigger than the American political landscape. And that means there should be a degree of humility as we go into this. There should be, there should be a, a degree of wrestling as we go into this. If you're somebody 
that is going to be voting or has voted for uh, a primarily Republican ticket and Republican candidates at different levels. And there's not a part of you that wrestles with those candidates and those platforms and those positions and wonders, how does it connect with your faith? Then I would submit to you that you're not thinking with great clarity as a Christian about this. And in the same way, if you are planning on voting or have voted for a primarily Democratic ticket, and those positions that come with that, and there's not pieces of you that struggle with how that fits together with our faith, then I would submit to you as well that you're not thinking with a lot of clarity and critical thinking about how as Christians we walk in this time. The kingdom of God does not conveniently fit in one corner of the American political spectrum. So what are we to do in these days? How does that specifically lead us to walk in these times? My worry with with how we're approaching this in this checklist format is that when we reduce Christianity to these talking points and therefore we have to vote in this way, we are relinquishing what makes our faith most unique and most special. This is just the path of religion. If you think about it in the New Testament, the only people that sat there and debated and argued about how uh, faith worked like a physics equation and therefore it all neatly fixed together in, in, in this certain answer that everyone should know, the only people that do that are the Pharisees. And if you've never read the Bible before and are watching this, we don't want to be in the position of the Pharisees. The uniqueness of our faith is that our religion, our our spiritual beliefs, what makes us different from any other religion or spiritual movement in the world is that at our core, we are not following a set of rules or doctrine. We're following a person, the person of Jesus. Here at Covenant, we say that we're encouraging one another to follow Jesus where we live, work, and play. Not the doctrine of Jesus, not the dogma of Jesus, not the rules of Jesus. We're following Jesus. And following a person is sometimes a little muddier than it is following a set of rules or legalistic doctrine. But some of what it means is that beyond just the checklist, it means we're following the example of Jesus. We're trying to imitate the lifestyle of Jesus. And in the scripture passage that Maureen read for us today, I think we get a really clear picture about what the uniqueness of our faith is that's more than just the rules. When this passage starts in John chapter 11, we hear a distressing call to Jesus that comes from people he's very close with, from sisters Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. These are people that Jesus knows and loves, has journeyed with them, and they reach out to him to let him know that Lazarus is ill and dying. And I'm going to be honest with you from the beginning, the initial reaction of Jesus, I kind of struggle with because it feels a little emotionally distant, right? Like what he says is when he hears that Lazarus, who he loves, is dying, he says, well, he's not going to die. This is to uh, to show the glory of God and to show the glory of the Son of God. And then he waits for two days before he begins traveling to see what can be done. When he shows up, Mary and Martha uh, kind of accuse him uh, of this emotional distance. They both look at him and when they see him, they say, if you had come, my brother wouldn't have died. We have to hear the accusation in that. We have to hear that if it's our brother, even if Jesus knows the, the, the theological answer, and, and, and the divine nature of Jesus does allow him to look forward and to see how things are going to go. If it's our brother dying, we want a little bit more urgency. Jesus repeats the same thing. Lazarus isn't going to die. 
that Lazarus, those who believe in me, will rise again. And then we see this miracle that, that is witnessed by so many of, uh, of the neighbors uh, and the friends of Mary and Martha when Lazarus does indeed come out of the tomb. But the uniqueness of our faith isn't just the power of our God. The uniqueness of our faith, and just as miraculous, is it says that while Jesus espouses, both before he goes to Mary and Martha and when he's with them, he espouses the truth that Lazarus will not stay dead, but will rise again. The miracle is how he responds when he comes into their presence, when he sees their pain, when he sees their grief, when he sees their loss, when he sees their tears. It says that the Messiah, the Savior, the word that John says was present from the creation of the cosmos and the creation of the world that has been there from everlasting to everlasting, that that power, that that divine presence sees the, the grief of a sister who has lost her brother. And it says he was greatly disturbed in spirit and that he then weeps. He joins them in that place of pain, this incredible intimacy that the creator, this is what makes at our core, our faith different. That the power of God is captured in a person who in the words of what modern scholars like Brene Brown would say, empathizes. To show empathy is to, is to have the, the strength, the emotional strength to get out of our own orbit and to put ourselves in the shoes of another and to see from their vantage point and let their vantage point impact and influence how we see the world. The Bible doesn't have the word empathy there, but the word that, that I would use biblically is very similar. It's the word compassion. Jesus exhibits compassion with Mary and Martha. When you break that word down in English, it literally means to suffer with, compassion. This is what Jesus does. He suffers with Mary and Martha. What a miracle that God enters into that space and it, and it seems to influence the spirit of God in some kind of way. As we enter into this election week, as we move into this divisive time, we can't just allow our religion to be reduced to the checklist that inform what we do. We have to remember that at our core, what we stand for, what we need to be witnessing for, what we need to be voting for, what we need to be hoping for, what we need to be speaking for, what we need to be proclaiming is a God who calls us into the same spirit of compassion with each other. And in our society today, that is in short measure. It is difficult to find. In fact, while we like to think that we're just moving up and to the right all the time, when it comes to the ex exhibition of compassion with those that are different from us, in some ways it feels like we're moving backward as a society right now. We must stand in that gap together. Take, for example, this as, as an illustration of that. It's not just feelings. Emma Green is a reporter for The Atlantic. And she has reported on the, the statistical growing trend of the enormous gap based on political ideology that is very difficult for us to bridge anymore in this country. She points to this statistic. A survey that asked, would you be upset with your child for marrying a person of another political party? Would you be upset with your child for marrying a person of another political party? This question has been a survey that's been asked every year for 70 years. And in 2019, 35% of Republicans said yes. 
I don't need to know anything else about them. I don't need to know where they're from. I don't need to know their value system. I don't need to know their family of origin. I don't need to know their religion. I, if, if all I, th- their identity is cemented enough, if they vote for another political party, I would struggle with my child. 35%. And before anybody on the left starts getting too haughty, the report also showed that 45% of Democrats would struggle to support their child if they married a person who voted for another political party. Don't need to know anything about them. That identity is enough to cement who they are and how I think about them and how I think about the idea of whether my child could fall in love with them and have a prosperous relationship. We must be better than this. And as Christians, we have to be the ones who stand and witness to the uniqueness of our God who steps into the shoes of another and exhibits compassion and learning and bridge building. How do we do this in this election? How concretely can we take these steps? Well, I came upon some rules for Christians in a time like this to consider how to conduct ourselves in the midst of a divisive election. And it's not my rules. Uh, I'm actually not a big rule-making kind of uh, person when it comes to faith, but these come from John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist denomination, who was in 1774 advising some Christians in Great Britain as to how to approach a very contentious election. And he gave them three rules, and I would submit them that these exhibit the compassionate heart of our creator, and you and I could apply these rules just as much, and they would be just as radical today. This is what he says on your screen. October 6, 1774. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. And for number one, this is a rule that we need to have. There is no perfect candidate. There is no perfect party. The kingdom of God is larger than the American political spectrum, but that does not give us the excuse to sit this out. We have to vote our conscience. We have to participate. We have to get involved in how we think each party or each platform or each issue aligns with a sense of faith as led by God. But we must step in. Number two, he says, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. That would be a radical step in this world right now. And we might look at others going, well, but they're not doing it. But we must lead in this as our Savior does in this story. And third, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. To take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. I heard an example as we close of this taking place for a member of Covenant recently. It's a young woman who's a part of our church who uh, through her faith is uh, voting in a particular way in this election. And, uh, but as where she lives in Austin, the house next door to her is often uh, put up for rental for different reasons at different times uh, as some houses in Austin are done. And the, a few weeks ago, it was rented out. And uh, the people who were coming in there, she didn't know anything about, but as they pulled in, there was a bumper sticker on their car that made it clear they were voting uh, for the other candidate for president than this member of our church. And she admitted to me, and I appreciated this because I feel this, I think many of us feel this in this time, what Wesley says, this sharpening of the spirit. She said that immediately, it was like, oh, I see this identity. I'm on the other side. And there's a piece of me that makes a lot of assumptions based upon that. 
She said that a couple days later, she happened to be in her front yard, and one of the people staying in the house came out into the front yard, and they began to talk, and they began to talk about why they had rented this house, and she heard a bit about their story. She heard a bit about how some policies from the government had, uh, in recent years, uh, transformed their family business and it become more and more of a struggle. And they were trying to work through some things in Austin to see if they could make this family business continue to survive. And that that was uh, leading them to take a certain position in the election. And she sat there and said that I listened to them. And it didn't change the way that I'm going to vote, she said, but it humanized them. I actually understood from what they were saying why they were taking the position that they were. They weren't this evil caricature that had been portrayed to me that in my heart. And she said that while it didn't change my vote, and we're going to cancel each other out in the voting booth on November 3rd, it did something to my heart. It softened something that I needed myself. It humanized them. We're in an age of incredible division. And friends, if we don't do this hard work of showing empathy, of building bridges with one another, of listening to one another, of suffering with one another, of showing compassion to each other, that while as important as this election is, and it is important, if we don't do this work, each of us, millions of us across the country for months and months and years to come, then it's all going to accelerate. Doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office. Doesn't matter who controls the Senate. Doesn't matter who controls the House. The divisions, the mistrust, the fracturing of our society will continue. We will rip one another apart in our self-righteous indignation that refuses to see the world from any other viewpoint than our own. How does God see the people on the other side of issues from you? how God sees them is that they were so loved and they are so valued that he gave his only son for them just as much as he did for you. How in the world can we justify through our faith treating others any differently than that? Amen.